message in the series of Misunderstood. And we're going to talk about, over the coming weeks, some of the most misunderstood uh, parts of the Bible. And um, we're going to look at those a little bit, see how they were misunderstood, see where that led people by misunderstanding some of those scriptures, and also uh, look at those and see what the proper understanding of some of those Bible verses are so that we can use them properly, but also have a better, deeper understanding and appreciation for what God was really trying to teach us with some of these, some of these uh, scriptures. Today is going to be an easy one. It's one that you all know. Uh, you've probably heard of before. Uh, you've probably actually seen it uh, on different necklaces or wristbands, or you've seen it on... Uh, people's faces. <laughs> um, it's very, very popular. It's Philippians 4.13. So who can quote for me? I'm sure some of you have it memorized. Who can quote for me Philippians 4.13? It was one of our Bible verses to memorize at, at Quest Camp. Remember? It starts, I can. Right. Pretty simple. Very simple verse. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but probably one of the most misunderstood verses that we have in the Bible. Um, it was probably popularized uh, more in the year of 2009. On July 27, 2009, on the cover of Sports Illustrated, the most widely uh, publicized sports magazine in the world, on the cover was a guy by the name of Tim Tebow. How many of you have heard of Tim Tebow? Even here in Australia, you've heard of Tim Tebow. Uh, quarterback for a Florida college football team, and he was going in to this last kind of game, the championship game, and on the little, you know, the little things that they put on the, what do they call those things? You know that, Nick? What do they call those little patches they put down underneath their eyes? Cheekbones. No, no. <laughs> Not cheekbones. Sun shaders, or you know, they, they put those block out intimidators. And on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Tim Tebow has his intimidators, if you want to call them that. Uh, that's a new term we've made up, Aaron. Um, Philippians, Philippians on one side, 413 on the other. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I don't know why he put that on there, I don't know his personal reasons for doing that. Uh, maybe. You know, he had some very personal reasons for, for doing that. But because he, he did that, a lot of fans, it created a, what we you know, call a, a fan frenzy. Um, people saw that message and they, you know, the, the Sports Illustrated went out and it, and it became a huge thing in our society. Matter of fact, if you Google Tim Tebow, Philippians 4.13, the first thing that pops up is that photo. It was that popular. In our culture, and all, yep. There you go. It's probably in the the notes today. I'm not sure. I didn't look at them too closely. There it is, right there. So we have that that image, right? And that image, for whatever reason, he put that on his on his face. I don't know, but that image created almost a misunderstanding of that particular verse. Um, Tim, to Tim Tebow almost 
trinkenize that verse. That's a, that's a word I made up this morning. The trinkenization of that verse. Do you know what I mean by that? I just lost that actually. I made it up. It's going to be on your year 12 exam. Yes. Actually, if you, want to, if you want to impress your year 12, just use that in your trinkenization of that verse. Anybody know, have, have an idea what I might mean by that? Yeah, you, you, and it not only, it became the, the verse for everyone. And they put it on everything. They put it on wristbands. They put it on necklaces. They put it on earrings. Um, everything that you could think of. And, and still, if you go into a Christian bookstore today, guess what you see? Philippians 4.13, all over. It, it became almost like a trinket. Uh, a good luck charm, if you will, a positive vibes verse for you to do. Now, don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. But if you are misunderstanding the meaning of that verse and you're putting it on stuff, you, if you're putting it on stuff, you ought to know what the true meaning of the verse is, right? Yeah, I think we should. Um, and it wasn't just Tim Tebow and his fan base and, and the world who saw that that message it's one of the most popular verses in any of the 66 books of the bible and it's been printed on millions of keychains and t-shirts and cell phone cases and coffee mugs literally becomes one of the most popular verses in all of the world we want to make sure that we're miss we're not misunderstanding it that we're not misusing it that we're not misinterpreting it it almost became a mystical incantation for Christians. And what do I mean by that? For many Christians, they would recite that passage when they need to draw power from another place to defeat an enemy or to conquer a difficult task. It's kind of like the talisman. So, so many cultures have that within their culture, right? They have that special, like Ruth said, that what? That little charm or that good luck rock or that trinket that they have to have with them and it's it's become that when they needed to uh gain strength it's kind of like the green lantern everybody like the green lantern never seen it okay well you need to go out and see it there so uh green lantern has what if you know what he has what does he have nathan okay <laughs> he has a ring when he needs to draw upon power what's he do he Draws power from that talisman, that ring, that power. And whatever he thinks, that power becomes. Okay, if he wants to make his fist real giant so he can hit a train or whatever, he, it becomes what he wants it to become. Almost, Philippians 4.13 has almost become that for many people. And hopefully, at the end of today, we'll have a better understanding of what that verse is really talking about. Joel Olstein, you've heard of Joel. Uh, maybe you haven't. Um, pastor of one of the largest evangelical mega churches in America, he provided the following commentary on Philippians 4.13. January 21st, 2013 edition of Today's World, in their devotional, this was his devotional, most people tend to magnify their limitations. They focus on their shortcomings. But Scripture makes it plain. 
All things are possible to those who believe. That's right, he says. It is possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It is possible to overcome every obstacle. It is possible to climb new heights. It is possible to embrace your destiny. You may not know how it will all take place. You may not have a plan. But all you have to know is that if God said you can, you can. I'm not trying to use Joel as a punching bag this morning. Um, there's certainly some great things that he has to offer. But I think he was misunderstanding this particular verse as he was telling everybody that you can do anything if you are a Christian. And I'm asking you today, can you do anything? Certainly not. I can tell you I will never be the world's fastest man in the 100-meter dash. Even when I was at my peak condition, I was never going to be that. So can I do all things through Christ? Certainly not. I cannot do all things. No matter how big my dreams are, I will never be able to achieve all of them through Christ Jesus. Now, you're becoming a little uncomfortable by me saying that, aren't you? Maybe, maybe not. If you are a little uncomfortable, then you, you already are feeling the impact of misunderstanding this scripture. Do you want that job promotion? You want to find that soulmate? You want to have a better relationship with your family or with your spouse? You want to make more money? No problem. You can accomplish it because all things are possible through Christ. What? <laughs> all right. Okay. <laughs> Yep. All things does not mean all things. Maybe that's how we've interpreted it, but it's not all things. What happens when a misunderstanding of Scripture gives birth to a whole new way of believing? And that's, that's what I believe has happened with this particular Scripture. Um, we have a whole new section of our society and our culture and our church culture that is promoting what we would call a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. What does that mean? Well, that means that if you believe in God hard enough, if you have faith in God enough, what will happen? All your dreams will come true. You will be healthy and you will be wealthy. And everything will turn out fine. How many of you know that not to be true? That's, that's real life. Yet we have a whole section or society, because of the misunderstanding of this scripture and a few others, that are preaching this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That God wants you to be pros prosperous. He wants you to have everything that you want to have. All things are possible through Christ Jesus. It's just not true. That's what happens when you misunderstand one or, or two verses in the Bible. It takes you down a road that is a road that leads to some pretty dangerous belief systems 
that can really wreck your life. If you believe the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, if you believe that to be true, what happens when you get sick, gravely ill, and someone passes away that you love dearly? What happens to your faith? It destroys it. It crushes it. Because you've been told or taught that everything's going to be fine. If you believe hard enough, if you believe hard enough, it will happen. And when something bad does happen, you think, what? I didn't believe hard enough. Or you blame someone else. Mainly, you blame God. Right? That's what happens. So, unfortunately, this way of interpreting and applying Philippians 4.13 couldn't be further from its actual meaning. It's exactly the very opposite of what they've turned it into. And we'll look at that. To understand what Paul, the author of Philippians, actually meant, we have to read the verse in the what? The context. One of our rules, right, that we studied last week, is you not just take one verse, but you look at the whole context of how that verse is used. That's not just with the Bible, by the way. You know, when you look at other texts like Shakespeare and other places, you know you use that same rule, right? You don't just pull this verse out and pull that verse out. But you look at the whole thing. Now, when Philippians was written, it was called uh, one of Paul's prison epistles, which is to say it was written during one of the many times that Paul was in jail. So it isn't surprising that the book draws heavily on the themes of humility, self-sacrifice. And when you imagine Paul writing this letter, uh, if you imagine him writing it on a balcony of a lovely villa in Italy, you're not imagining it correctly. What you need to imagine is Paul writing this in the the moisture-filled, dank, first-century prison cell. Not exactly the new heights and destiny imagined above. When you imagine that, you're already beginning to feel uncomfortable, aren't you? You're thinking, wow, he wrote these words in this particular context. We call that not just the context of the book, but we call that one of our other rules is called the, starts with H, I, S, historical background. We look at the historical background of the book and why it was written. That gives us understanding. When we know that Paul was writing this from a prison rather than a a balcony of a villa, it makes a difference. It puts context and meaning behind the words that he's writing. But more than the setting, we have to recognize that Philippians 4.13 is a part of a larger idea, of a larger section. When we look at verses 11 and 12 and, and verses actually 1 through 13, the thought of this verse begins to take shape. Now let me give you a little background behind Philippians, the church. I'm not going to you know, go through all of this, but in Acts chapter 16, you can go and look at that later. I've given you some excerpts on that for, in your notes. But in Acts chapter 16, Paul actually comes to Philippi for the first time, this town, and he meets some people, and through his interactions with these people, a church is started. And the church is made up of a different 
sort of combination of people. Um, if you know anything about Acts chapter 16 or the first uh, converts of this church in Philippi, who were some of the first converts? It's in your notes if you want to cheat and look there. Or if you know it already, that's great. Timothy was one of uh, the first converts of that church. Who else? Lydia, a seller of purple fabrics, a businesswoman, right? What? Who else? Uh, some jailers and some jailers and some prisoners that were converted through the early part of the beginning of that church. Now, can you think of any more eclectic group than some jailers, <laughs> some prisoners, some businesswomen, and a young guy named Timothy? I mean, these guys come from all different kinds of backgrounds. They are about as different from one another as they can be. Matter of fact, probably some of the prisoners stole from the very businesswomen that became Christians. And they probably had, uh, you know, fights with the jailers as they were in prison. And so here they're converted and they become followers of Jesus and they all become part of this first church. If you want to look at what uh, led up to their conversions and how they were converted, just read Acts chapter 16 this afternoon and you'll be able to get an appreciation for how that all happened. The reason that's important... The reason that's important for us to know, that's context, right? Historical context we're looking at. The reason that's important is look at the very beginning of Philippians. Philippians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Euodia, and I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I also I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, always. And again I say rejoice. Let your spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with your thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. What's happening? What's Paul addressing here? What's he talking about in the letter? Some of these businesswomen aren't getting along. Whether it's business-related, I don't know. But some of these women in, the, in this church were not getting along with one another. And Paul is writing them and saying what? It's okay. It's okay. Be strong. Rejoice. He's asking them to look at life from a different perspective, isn't he? He's asking them that it's okay. Just, just help each other. You know, do what Christians do. Come together and live life together. And then he goes on. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, he says, Whatever is true, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, and if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. He's saying to them, change your thinking. You're thinking about all this negative stuff, and it's driving you apart. Change your thinking. 
You need to think about more positive things instead of always thinking of the negative. Dwell on these, these things, he says. Not just think about them in passing, but actually think about them all the time. And he goes on, he says, these, the things that you've learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and, God, and the God of peace will be with you. He says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to what? I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then he says, what? Right. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does he mean all things? No. What he's meaning there is in all things, right? In all things, I have learned to what? Be content. So it actually means the exact opposite of what we think sometimes this means. Oftentimes we think, oh, I can do all things. I can achieve all my dreams, just like Joel says in his commentary, right? That's not what this means. It means even if you're gone, if you've gone without food, even if you're suffering, even if you're going through the hardest thing that you've ever had to go through in your life, be content. It's okay. Because I can see Jesus in what? All things, everything. In you, in me, in the circumstances that I'm going through. It doesn't mean that God's going to take hard things from you, by the way. It just means that when you go through those hard things, guess who's going to be there? Jesus is going to be there. He's going to walk with you through those things. All things. So all there doesn't mean everything that we want, does it? It means that he's going to be there in everything that we go through. Every single thing. Again, get this. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be, to go without. I know how to, what it's like to have prosperity, and it doesn't really matter. I am content with whatever happens. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full, to be hungry, and to, be, to abound and suffer need. Paul isn't telling Christians that they shouldn't dream bigger dreams. He is reminding them that they can endure the crushing feeling of defeat if those dreams aren't realized. doesn't mean that you don't I don't mean to put a, a damper on your life here. You can go ahead and dream and achieve and be inspired to want to achieve certain things. But if those things don't happen, I don't want you to be crushed. Neither does, neither does God. God's saying you need, to be learn, you need to learn how to be content no matter what your circumstance, no matter where you are in your life, no matter where you are in your journey, you need to learn how to be content. And that's a hard lesson to learn. He's not encouraging Christians to go out and conquer the world. 
He's reminding them that they can press on when the world conquers them. Does that make sense? There's a guy I read this week. His name's Eric Barger Huff. Very interesting name. And he puts it this way. He says, Philippians 4.13 is not really about those about who has the strength to play to the best of their abilities in a sporting contest. This verse is about having strength to be content when we are facing those moments in life when physical resources are minimal. Contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not teach God will give you the strength to do whatever you set your mind to. That is not a biblical concept. Actually, any time that you see a view that says God will give you, you probably ought to take a step back (laughs) and ask, is this going to really be true? Because when you hear those words, God will give you something, you really need to take a step back and go, I need to listen really close here because there might be a misunderstanding of what really God will give you. God is not a heavenly bellhop or a divine sugar daddy or a cosmic power plant to fuel your dream quest. That's not how it works. But yet that's the way we treat it sometimes. The Bible teaches God is a sustainer when life feels unsustainable. And I don't know if you've been there, but I know I'm 52 and I've been there several times in my life where life does not feel sustainable to me. And it's in those moments that God shows up and he is the sustainer of those who love him. He's the sustainer who those for those who would rely on him. If you're like me, this is good news because you are going to get to that point where life doesn't feel so good. If you have a proper understanding of this verse, you will know that he will be there. If you don't, those times in your life where you feel really down is going to crush you and you're going to feel like an ant with a boot print on your forehead. But with a proper understanding of his Bible in this particular verse, you will understand that that boot print can never crush you. He will always be there because he is the sustainer, the life giver, even when life doesn't seem so good. I don't need a God who motivates me to pursue my career dreams or chase down opportunities for personal advancement. I possess that drive on our, we possess that drive on our own. Instead, I need a God who hunkers down with me in life's trenches, who isn't afraid to get dirty and messy with me and to wade through the tragedy and the pain and the suffering of my life. That's the kind of God I need. And it just so happens that's the kind of God he is. The God of the Bible, Jesus, is better than we've ever imagined because he gives us exactly what we need. The strength to survive during our moments of weakness and the sense of freedom even when we feel imprisoned. And that's exactly what Paul was meaning when he wrote these words. He was in that dark, damp prison. And he penned those words, I have learned to be content even here. 
even here in prison, I have learned to be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know he's here all the time. Every single dirty little part of my life, he is here and he is with me. That's what that verse means. And when we use it out of context, when we misunderstand it, 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 it throws us down a path that makes us confused, bitter when things don't go our way, upset at God, like Nick said, we blame everybody and God when things don't go exactly the way we want them to because we're not really getting the, the meaning of this scripture to learn to be content no matter what happens in our life. That's it. What do you think? You get it? That's the easy one. <laughs> That's the easy one. So go home, look at Acts chapter 16, look at more of that context. The more that context and the more the, the context of that church and that, uh, those verses that you look at, it will be, this will have so much more meaning to you. And, and you'll go home and you'll think, man, God is with me even as I'm you know, swamped with dirty nappies and I'm, you know, I've, got, I've lost my job this week or I can't get the job that I really want or you know, I've lost the, this job or I, I failed this test or whatever happens in your life, you'll know you can breathe and it'll be okay because he is with you in every single circumstance of this life. Let's pray and then you can eat some goodies. Hey God, thank you for today. Thank you for teaching us through your word. Uh, help us to rightly understand things. And if there's, if there's things I didn't understand this morning, please, just please guide and direct me. Help us as we search your scriptures for truth so that we can live the life that you would have for us. In whatever circumstance, Lord, teach us to be content, to know that we have you all the time, no matter where we are in our journey and our quest. So guide us and direct us this week. Help us to, to love people that come across our path um, and certainly help us to connect with you and love you this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.